This is Alex. I'm from Boston. Hello, this is Jackie, and I'm from Houston. Hey, this is Rahul from Stanford. And we are the Premier Chess. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Premier Chels. Today, we're joined by Ben, our friend of the pod. Ben, welcome back to the Premier Chels. It's been a few minutes. It has been a while. I don't think we've spoken since before the World Cup, but looking forward to the Premier League returning. We are as well. Maybe we're not because Chelsea didn't leave in such a, <laughs> a good note, but let's start with the World Cup. I know that you were following them around in Doha. How has your experience been? And maybe a quick World Cup recap. Yeah, of course. I mean, I lived in Doha for a couple of years working for a broadcaster out there. So I know the region well. What I loved about the World Cup was that it was effectively a one city World Cup, either right. in Doha or on the outskirts. And that, from a journalist perspective, made it a dream because you could get to all of the games. You could obviously follow different teams. And I think that it also led to a one city culture, which is very yeah. abnormal for a World Cup. You know, when we look at America, Canada, Mexico, we have a scenario which is extremely exciting with an expanded World Cup. Great in particular for North American soccer. If we're mm. specifically looking at the growth of the U.S. men's national team, the U.S. women's national team, who are already strong. And in addition to that, the leagues as well. But what you won't get is that ability as a journalist, if you're covering England or the US men's national team, to then suddenly pivot and enjoy a moment with the Moroccan fans or the Saudi Arabian supporters when they beat Argentina, and ultimately Argentina's glory and their fairy tale, and Messi adding that final missing piece to his glittering career <laughs> and already full trophy cabinet, and what a moment that was. So I think I love the fact that it was a different World Cup and lots of different cultures all in the same place were able to interact. And there was one area in particular that was sort of the gateway to many of the stadiums and where the broadcasters were based as well, called the Souk Wakif. Okay. And a lot of those, particularly from the Middle East and North Africa, but also the South Americans as well, would gather there, would party there, would eat there late. And it was just a very safe and inclusive space and a very jubilant atmosphere. So of course, when we think of Qatar, we can't forget about the human rights and we need to make sure that that scrutiny continues beyond the World Cup and also gets escalated beyond just football conversations because some of these problems are unfortunately prevalent across many parts of the Middle East in particular. So we can judge the World Cup in a football sense and what a tournament it was, the greatest ever final, tons of upsets, including Saudi Arabia beating Argentina, Japan were brilliant, Morocco were brilliant, Tunisia, remember, got a victory against France as well. So there were lots of different stories that were heartwarming and showed how competitive the World Cup is and allowed different nations to celebrate. And then, of course, the final and even some of the other games as well, the Argentina-Netherlands match yeah. was also pretty superb in terms of its drama on the football field. So when we look at it from a football perspective, phenomenal, dramatic, pulsating, enthralling, and then that messy ending that a lot of the neutrals, certainly for me after England went out, and no doubt for many Americans after the US men's national team went out, from that point onwards, many were pulling in the direction of Messi and also Morocco as well, who went all the yeah. way to the final stage of the tournament. Great for Luka Modric to finish in third place as well. Disappointing for Ronaldo, naturally, not to end that World Cup and as a free agent as well with the trophy or even anywhere near the business end of the tournament, despite the fact that without him, Portugal showed great promise in beating Switzerland, but then they found themselves dumped out of the tournament. And again, that just lends itself towards this incredible Morocco fairy tale of knocking out Spain, of knocking out Portugal, and of really going toe-to-toe -to -toe with France as well. So there was a lot to like on the football side. There was a lot to question away from the football side. And then from the perspective of the US men's national team, I think that Christian Pulisic had a very good tournament, which could obviously benefit Chelsea going forwards if he gets more game time, but they lacked a little bit of balance. They lacked a bit of cutting edge at times. 
And one of their better performances was probably in that draw against England where they showcased more of a front foot approach. And I think they relish being underdogs in that, but it didn't necessarily replicate against the Netherlands. I thought that Louis van Gaal got his tactics right. I think that they gave themselves a mountain to climb in the first half. They didn't really have an answer to how the Dutch were playing. And then in the second half, and even against the run of play, they gave it a bit more of a go. They got a goal back, but it just kicked the Netherlands back into gear. They found another goal. And of course, then it was game over. So disappointing, but still a lot of positives to take as far as the next World Cup on home soil is concerned. And the final thing that I want to say is just away from all of that, We, I'm sure it's the same for many people listening and yourself included, were devastated to lose Grant Wall too, which made the final days of the tournament extraordinarily difficult. It was heartwarming to see FIFA and colleagues rally around. It was great to see his seat empty with flowers and his photo to pay tribute, but it was also extremely horrific and emotional and saddening to not see him there because he's been so ever present throughout eight world cups so obviously that took everybody by surprise quite clearly his impact particularly on the north american market should never be forgotten and will never be underestimated u.s soccer put out a recent and beautiful tribute to him with a variety of different voices all telling their Grant Wall story. And I think that's the point with Grant, that he's given so many people in the industry a leg up. He was always generous with his time. I worked with him at SoccerX, one of the biggest soccer conferences, and we did a panel together. And essentially what Grant did was move from, in his earlier days, MBA, And everybody knows about that brilliant cover shoot with LeBron before he was the global superstar that he is now. But by shifting and with the Sports Illustrated brand, he was able to elevate men's soccer, women's soccer, soccer generally, even global soccer away from specifically North America to that market. And it gave everybody a window in. And then over time, he started to naturally pick and choose stories that really mattered to him. And that, of course, included some of his coverage around the treatment of migrant workers and also inclusivity within the LGBTQ plus community. And he took that to Qatar. He proudly wore his rainbow shirt. And there's actually a lovely tribute sort of custom kit that's been released. And it's a black soccer jersey with a sort of shadowed face of Grant and then a rainbow circle around it and also rainbow sleeves. And I'm definitely going to try and track down who's selling that and where I can purchase that. But it was just the fact that Grant was always passionate. Grant was always humorous. Grant always had time for everybody. And I swear that there must have been two or three of him cloned walking around because he put so much time and energy and passion into everything big or small and that's how he'll be remembered but obviously when we think about the world cup of course it's nice to celebrate the football of course the final was phenomenal and of course we got so many storylines on that front but such a big part of football in north america was grant wall so i don't think that we can reflect on the World Cup without offering our thoughts, prayers, condolences and tributes to Grant's wife, Celine, his brother, Eric, and all of his friends and family, and even those that didn't know him, but he just left an impact upon because of who he was and what he wrote and broadcast. And I think that's the point here, that when these horrific, tragic things happen, what you find is not only everybody rallying around, but hundreds and hundreds of people that had Grant Wall stories or were impacted by Grant Wall that he may not have even realized he had such a big influence on. And that's the measure of the man. That's the measure of his legacy. And once again, I offer up as I've done since, unfortunately, the news happened, my thoughts and prayers to all of his friends and family. Ben, well said. I couldn't say it better. I think you've done a wonderful job of not only recapping the World Cup, which obviously was incredible, and I'll I'll share my thoughts in a moment, but shedding some light to Grant's name as well. And not that he needed much more light, but just sharing your condolences as well. We we all know what he brought to the game as well. But coming back to the World Cup and sticking to just football, I think for us here, Rahul and I talked a lot about it. And you touched on Morocco being incredible and going on a run. And for us, 
growing up or coming from West Africa, having a mm -hmm. chance to see an African nation make it that far into the World Cup is something absolutely incredible. And from a Chelsea perspective, you look at even Hakim Ziyech playing football that was incredible that we haven't necessarily seen him play in a Chelsea shirt. So we were absolutely stoked for that. One more question I have for you surrounding the World Cup before we move on to things Chelsea is, any players stand out to you that maybe were not so well known before? Because I know one of the beautiful things of the World Cup is some mm. players that don't always have a stage to shine can maybe move for a transfer or at least put their name out there to show that they do have a name on the football world. I think that there's a few and naturally we as those from the outside in may be alerted to somebody, but you can bet your bottom dollar that the clubs have been there and had that player on their radar for quite some time. So sometimes when a club appears in a January window to make a move for a World Cup player, and it's the first time we've been in this scenario, but naturally we've had summer World Cups and summer windows and equivalent things happen, people perhaps believe there's that James Rodriguez style reaction and some may remember he had an amazing World Cup scored a wonder goal and then obviously got a massive transfer and it leads people to think that World Cup equals market and overdrive but usually clubs actually had determined that the player they were going to go for regardless of whether they had a good or bad World Cup was actually somebody that they'd allocated before a ball was kicked at any major tournament. But what the major tournament does is it might provide another suitor. It might make someone that was 50-50 in their decision-making process decide to lean in favour of the player. And of course, it might add money to the actual transfer. So if you look at Cody Gakpo, a name that we all knew about before the World Cup, Manchester United will come back in in January, but they're going to need to find either another 7 to 10 million based on the price last summer or... Alternatively, they're going to have to provide a more preferential structure to the deal. Right. So ultimately, more money is paid to PSV up front. And the reason for that is because there's a situation now where PSV will be looking at Gakpo, accepting that he might go, but worried mid-season that right. they're not going to be able to replace him. So they'll want a lot of money in terms of an installment, a lump sum up front. And then they'll have time within the January window if they're resigned to losing him in order to find some other alternatives. And that tells you that the World Cup equals an opportunity to move quicker within the market. And I think that would be the one big thing that January is only a one month window yeah. and it's usually a quieter window. And I still don't think that that many clubs, Chelsea included, will go into crazy overdrive, not to the tune of summer spending, but two or three in Chelsea's case is not unrealistic plus the youth players that are about to come into the club on top of that so it still could be five or six signings but half might be for the future and two or three can be for the present but what you'll find I think because of the World Cup is that if World Cup players are under threat of leaving their current clubs will want those deals done quicker so they leave time to spend in the market and in addition to that, they'll want more money up front to give them funds to spend in the market. So you can actually have a kind of bittersweet scenario where it's good for Chelsea if they go after a World Cup player because they can get the deal done potentially earlier. And it's bad for Chelsea because they might not get the payment terms that they would usually expect from a January window. And then in terms of specific players that are maybe lesser known, I think that Mohamed Kudus had a very good yeah. tournament and will be in the shop window. I think that Unahi is definitely someone at Onger that is drawing a lot of interest from my club, Leicester included. So Chelsea and others will be more linked with an Amrabat or a Enzo yeah. Fernandez, but Unahi is at the right age and he's a, a club, I think, that will be forced to sell should the right offer come in. So there's a real bargain there. And if he replicates his World Cup form, then there's that opportunity to do a very smart bit of business. But this is the thing about World Cups, that there's a reason why that type of player hasn't already gone. And it's because people last summer and in January are still not necessarily convinced overall by the consistency of performance. And of course, players raise their game but Anahi's only 22 so right. there's still a lot of room and development there and he's also only one under 20 caps for Morocco but that's the thing you always have to be wary of is during a World Cup players raise their game Pulisic did it Ziyech did it 
Emi Martinez did it as well. And I don't think anyone would have been talking about a Chelsea or Manchester United coming in for a 30-year-old goalkeeper, right. but they see what he does at the World Cup and they say, actually, I'll have a little bit of that. So it just shows you that the World Cup sometimes can provide a skewed perspective, but yep. other times it can be a player announcing themselves. And who's to say that Emi Martinez won't now go back to Villa and provide that same level of consistency? He's done okay for Villa, but I don't think he's necessarily put himself forwards as a Champions League goalkeeper necessarily. So we have to wait and see with some body like that. And I think the same applies for the Croatian goalkeeper as well, who was arguably quite unlucky not yeah. to get the golden glove. And it was just one of those strange scenarios where he made more saves than anyone else, but two other quality goalkeepers reached the final in Hugo Lloris and Emi Martinez. So given it then went to penalties, whichever goalkeeper was one of the heroes was always likely to get that golden glove. But Dominic Livakovic had a phenomenal tournament as well. And he's at a good age for a goalkeeper now, 27 years of age. He's at Dinamo Zagreb. There's definitely a openness to uh, move away from Croatia and get a move that might bring him somewhere like the Premier League. There's some interest as well from Germany as well. So he's the player that we have to watch that very much announced himself at the World Cup. And then, of course, Alexis McAllister's the other one that is worth touching upon. And naturally, Chelsea fans will be putting two and two together. Same with Moises Caicedo and saying Brighton, Potter, Paul Winstanley, Carl McCauley as well. We know him well. Surely that's the type of player. But the challenge is contracted at Brighton until 2025 and with a one-year option to extend. So that might be the type of signing that any prospective suitors are going to have to be a bit more patient with. But clearly another name that announced himself at the World Cup as combative, as reliable, as hungry, as box-to-box. -box. And I think that that just shows you really what a World Cup can do to a young player like that, toiling away at Brighton, impressing at Brighton, getting opportunities at Brighton, and then suddenly showing that that game time allows him to elevate and cut it with the best. And that's great from Brighton's perspective because he's still under quite a long-term contract and they know that at any point, if they choose to sell him now, that World Cup performance, whether it's now, whether it's the summer or whether it's 2024 and beyond, that World Cup performance will not be forgotten financially speaking. So they're always going to be able to cash in. Yeah, look, that's brilliant. And as, as Chelsea fans and as football fans, I think as we watch, we start to look at some of these players and it's fascinating to say, oh, that guy looks good. He could fit into the team. But mm. a football club may have him on his radar for years maybe like we talked about in the past and so i'm excited to see what happens here especially with maybe some of the younger players that we've talked about that will come through but let's move on to a little bit of the recruitment i know we spent a little bit of time talking about this in the past but it looks like chelsea's recruitment from the technical level is almost complete christopher vivel coming in lawrence stewart joe shields and forgive me if i'm saying this wrong but paul win stanley as well mm -hmm. and so i think that the bowley group has now completed most of the recruitment side of the house i'm sure there's a few more names but i'll pass it over to you to share what you know about what's going on there and what these guys are going to bring to chelsea yeah they've completed their recruitment and they haven't completed their recruitment <laughs> because they don't have a functional multi-club model yet and yep. obviously the more the club expands the more personnel they'll need and there's always really room for more unsung heroes within a recruitment department so I think what you have to understand about a functional transfer committee which is I think the best way of describing it at the moment is the dynamic is more important than any individual name and until there's a say a clear divide between what's global what's young what's Chelsea only and even what's kind of for the future versus what's for now then there will be a lot of crossover regardless of what any title says so if you take Liverpool's model which is more established you start very low down with a range of people scouts which will be managed by your technical director and other senior members at the team but then there'll be data analysts and mathematicians and Liverpool's model is to bring in a lot of junior people that have got different skill sets outside of the football industry. And they can be very unsung heroes, but you won't really hear about them unless they move up the system or get given a more senior role. But the point trying to simplify it is that at that lower level, you get perspective. 
And that perspective can be gut instinct all the way through to science or data. And in Liverpool's case, they love the idea of bringing on board a physics major or a mathematician who knows nothing about football because their role will not be to look at football with any kind of subjective perspective. It will just be to take a load of numbers and interpret whether anything leaps out and also to look at existing numbers and see whether there's a pattern. And that pattern might seem farcical to you and to me. And it may never reach, by the way, the senior recruitment team. It may never reach the manager, but it's there. And they'll come up with all kinds of things like how do we perform on a Tuesday night? Does six <laughs> performances become altered if it drops below 10 degrees, if it drops below five degrees. Is Pulisic a better substitute after 65 minutes or before 65 minutes? Has he scored more goals when he started a game and been taken off or whether he's been brought on for 30 plus minutes and right. then has fresh legs in a latter part of the game? And of course, you don't want to have a kind of paralysis by analysis, but this is the kind of thing that's lacking at Chelsea and the new ownership group were really surprised at both how little data they inherited, right. but also how it wasn't connected between different parts of the club. So when we say the recruitment team has been built at a, I'm going to call it grassroots level right. or lower level or intermediate level, there'll be room to bring in more. And it's almost like everyone that is out there and known and new to the club is almost like a department head. And as a consequence, if they want to bring in two or three other people that work beneath them, they can in the same way that Graham Potter brought in Carl McCauley as his sort of personal recruitment specialist. So I think that they've built it from the top now and they'll actually start recruiting from the middle and the bottom. And then as the model develops, we might see more of a divide between global and Chelsea. And the point of that is that Chelsea have this twofold strategy. Number one, to fix the now. And number two, to plan for the future. And your technical director in Christopher Vivelle is all about the planning for the future, all about the management of scouts. But sometimes you have to move simultaneously because you've got a need now. So you can't always be as strategic as you like. And as a consequence, Christopher Vivelle coming in and being able to start immediately and Paul Winstanley being there and being able to start immediately and Neil Bath getting added role and responsibility allows for people within Chelsea to kind of scramble, but with a calmness and get things done in January. And then after January, I think that there'll be clearer lanes and clearer titles. Because remember, Lawrence Stewart is coming in as a technical director with more of a global focus, but he doesn't start until February and cannot right. contractually, due to Monaco, have any commitment during the January window. And then you have Joe Shields, who Southampton were very annoyed, left under that type of circumstance. And he has a relatively long gardening leave as well. So not everyone is in and the model's not built. And then Berdagag Bali doesn't actually have a formal title and Todd Bowley still carries his interim title. So when people say it's built, it's not so much built as robust and the dynamic is there, the chemistry is there. And the most important thing within this type of transfer committee, which is more like Liverpool, is the freedom to disagree. So it's not really about individual egos. It's not really about autonomy and authority. And as I've told you many times, it all then feeds up to Agbali and to Bowley in the decision making, because they're still the ones heavily involved in the negotiation process. And then after January, we have to wait and see whether that continues or they still bring in a sporting director or a CEO of football or whatever they call it, or whether Todd Bowley says, actually, this is working and I want to remove my interim title and I want to be that. And there's still a possibility that Egbali either gets a title or has a more involved role even than now. Now he's kind of negotiating. Now he's kind of thinking about the finances of the football club and where the investment opportunities are. But who knows what direction that will go in because they're both enjoying it from what I understand. And if it's working, why wouldn't they put even more of their time and energy in that area and allow people like Jonathan Goldstein and Tom Glick to take on other operational responsibilities within the club? And I do think that Jonathan Goldstein, not necessarily by title, but again, by nature, will end up having more and more responsibility responsibility within the club, especially because everybody accepts that 
at the stadium renovation, of which we'll know far more about next year in terms of a specific timescale, that is high importance too. So it's natural that Tom Glick and Jonathan Goldstein might assume areas of responsibility to cover the fact that clearly Agbali and Boli are still heavily involved on the transfer side. And then you have this clear priority on top of all of this, which might require more staffing to invest in France and possibly Belgium and Portugal, and some will tell you South America. But I think of those four regions, France in particular, in terms of the recruitment and where they see value for young players, but also in this multi-club model, maybe buying, maybe partnering, maybe investing, but France is key, key priority. And Bernard Bali has said this a few times now, that the lower leagues of France have huge potential because you get a win-win. You get one, usually excellent grassroots coaching and allocation of talent. So that's good for Chelsea. And then you get two, the fact that a little investment in these clubs goes a long, long way because many of them don't own their stadiums. They have good training facilities. They have very passionate fan bases. And due to the League One nature and hopefully new TV deals incoming, you can end up getting a windfall. And then if you take that club up into higher divisions, yes, you've got a slight problem with the balance of Chelsea, but the Red Bull group have proven it's possible. But if you did that, you get a return without really having to break the bank, break the wage bill and so on. And if you keep them in the lower leagues, but with a good production of talent, and I think that there's a few good examples of that. Onger's a one, like some obviously are going to cite Monaco. And that's why Lawrence Stewart's come in, but they're a bigger club. And obviously, again, if you owned Monaco, if you own Leon and John Texter's just come in there, you have a few more problems. But who's to say that they're just looking at buying or quickly? What they're looking at is testing the water. So it right. might be a minority investment. It might be a partnership. It might not even be something that's legally formal because you can sign strategic partnerships. But the point is they're trying to widen their network. And I think that France is one region that they see as high, high priority to do that. So when we say the recruitment model is built, what we actually mean is that there's people in place for January and there's forward planning for the summer of 2023. But when we're actually talking about specific names, specific roles and whether any more will come in, I still think there's a question mark because we don't know whether Bowley is going to surrender and step back entirely. I think he wants to step back from a lot, but I think he enjoys the negotiation. So instead of stepping back entirely and being a traditional owner that is not as day-to-day, I think there's a question as to whether his day-to-day is going to be recruitment predominant and long-term or whether it's going to be operational predominant and long-term. But I don't see him stepping back entirely. And then with Egbali, you could say the same. Is he going to be financially orientated? Is he going to be strategically orientated? Is he going to be investment orientated, which are all in his wheelhouse? Or is he still going to be involved in the negotiation? And as they found, I think, it's not easy to end a window and turn off and turn your attention to other things, because effectively the window for people in those roles is a 24-7 job. And as a result, they'll need to lean on other people. But of course, the other option is that in the summer, when Michael Edwards starts thinking about his next role, when other people might become available on the market, but more important than any of that, when the dynamic they've got becomes apparent, that is when they will know exactly who they need, which is why they're in no rush to make any more appointments at this point. Yeah. And and Ben, this is really interesting to me because we've talked a lot about it in the past and the more you explain, and you answered it a little bit, but you talk about, you know, Christopher Vivelle will be a technical director, Lawrence Stewart will be a technical director, and then Paul will be global talent. And to some degree, while they are titles, they're not solidified yet. And so in my experience, a lot of businesses come down to people and personalities in previous models say liverpool or even manchester city i think sometimes maybe even though we say no egos come into play people don't always agree and some may fall out as well do you know from the background if chelsea are hiring to make sure these gentlemen all agree with each other are going in the same path of course they can say no they can say we don't agree but ultimately is the vision the same with the type of folks that they're hiring 
yeah, the vision's the same. That's the most important thing. And even Michael Edwards was blown away by the vision, but the dynamic takes time. Yeah. And I think that in the case of Joe Shields, he left Manchester City, as sources tell me, because he didn't like the dynamic. There were too many cooks and right. the structure was clear, but there's always going to be crossover because with young players in particular, if you start scouting someone for the future and then you need them for the present, or if you start scouting someone for the future and then there becomes interest from other departments in the club, it obviously has to be collaborative. Yeah. And that's not abnormal. That's just how football works. But the more people you have, the more opinions you have. And then ultimately some people can start playing an authority card. And that's what's most interesting about Chelsea. And this is what ultimately was Thomas Tuchel's downfall that he didn't get on professionally with the new owners. He preferred the old way because the new way was more collaborative. And from right. Tuchel's point of view, he would use the word had interference. Now there's two sides to every story. And when you have ambition and when you shake things up, you kind of have to, to some extent, step on people's toes. But with Graham Potter, he was employed because he bought into the vision. And obviously, unlike Thomas Tuchel, he brought Carl McCauley to add that kind of buffer. So now the ownership group feel that when they want to talk to Potter, they can talk to Potter or they can talk to Carl McCauley. And Carl McCauley can take a lot more meetings with the recruitment department and with the ownership group. And Graham Potter has a little bit more freedom. And then again, Paul Wynn Stanley from Brighton. Why? Because once again, they've all worked together. So that gives Potter a lot of, for want of a better word, friends or allies. And in addition to that, it, I think, is a sign that the new ownership group are backing Graham Potter. Now, with Paul Wynn Stanley, they've not just employed him because Graham Potter wanted him. Quite the opposite. They allocated him because they've done their industry research. And Wynn Stanley's role at Chelsea is a promotion on what it was at Brighton. And he will actually undertake some roles that we associate with the sporting director. So there's a lot of change. And that's a good thing, because if you just take what Brighton did, you only get one aspect that benefits Chelsea. But Chelsea's model, Chelsea's structure, Chelsea's size, Chelsea's budgets, they're all different to Brighton. So if all you do is replicate what you did at Brighton, then what you'll find is you unearth a lot of talent at a youth level and hopefully at value. And of course, Chelsea want that, but you don't necessarily get as many finished right. products and you don't necessarily win the race with those individuals for your Bellinghams and your Rices. And this is where other members of Chelsea will have inputted and continue to input because part of winning those races is the long-term planning and courting. So if you come in new to a club and you weren't a part of that, you have to rely on members of the old regime and work out where are we at with the race for a Bellingham or a yep. Declan Rice. And then, of course, you've got Todd Bowley and Bedag Bali at the moment anyway, right at the top of the pyramid. But I think that it's all really about dynamic and it's all really about everybody understanding what the model is now and what it will become and on what timescale. And then knowing how in the shorter term to fix things that are priority over all of that. And this is what's useful about having a couple of people coming in after the January window, more with a global focus or a youth focus that they can go out there and plan ahead without any real panic about what happens if we don't make Champions League football in 2023? Because these type of players fall into that Endrick mm. mode and they won't be available until they're 18 or yeah. they are available, but just not in the market now with Alexis McAllister probably yeah. being a good example of that. So what you have is forward planners that are only thinking about the future and know that in all likelihood, Chelsea will be there or thereabouts. It's very unlikely they won't have any European football. It's highly likely in the next 10 seasons, if everything goes according to plan, that most seasons, if we're basing it on Chelsea's history, they will get Champions League football. So they can base their plans on that. And then you have the other team, including obviously Todd Bowley, who's leading that, that are just working out what they need for January right now. Right. And it doesn't matter what the strategy is. So they'll say repeatedly they don't want to be signing 30 plus year olds. They want to reduce the wage bill. They need to revamp the midfield. But right now they're also just thinking about let's work out 
whether or not we can do anything to predict injuries so we've got the best possible chance of keeping everyone fit. Let's get Wesley Fofana back. Let's get Reese James back. Let's work out whether either Pulisic or Ziyech are effectively like a new signing or a player with a new lease of life. And are we going to give them game time and are we going to hang on to them? And that obviously then reflects the areas where they choose to strengthen. And then they know that they need midfield reinforcement and they know that they need goals. So there's a bit more of a urgency about that and we might see them go against their strategy and go against their long-term model as I think they proved to some extent with say signing a Bamiyang on the last day of the window so this is a bit of a mix it's a hybrid almost between a slightly lower key summer and maybe still some big spending and a few outgoings versus trying to lay down that marker and show they're getting their business done early and they're investing in youth and that's where Fafana, the other Fafana, and Santos come yep. in. And they'll hopefully have lined those up both officially and be able to announce them pretty close to when the window opens, if not before. Yeah, and I think that's the key. I was actually going to move on to transfers. I know we have short time today and, and maybe wrap up at transfers. But uh, with Santos and Fafana, it's interesting to see when they got linked to Chelsea. I know this is probably going on for longer, but before the transfer window opens, business is getting done. And this is something you had alluded to early on in the in the summer was Chelsea are going to get better at doing deals before transfer windows open and, and knock them off. But for January, with some injuries, is there any player that Chelsea has their interest in on now and potentially trying to get business done before the window closes? I know it wouldn't be a lot of players, but a couple that you said might be in the market for. So Dacho Fafana and Andre Santos, they're done and yep. medical taking place yep. in the case of Datro Fafana. Andre Santos will come over to England a little bit later due to schedules, but they're both Chelsea players. I think it's fair to say that right. at this point. So I expect the official announcements to come relatively soon. And Datro Fafana, for me, is the most interesting one because he turned 30 on the day that he signed. Uh, 20, I should say, not 20, 30. Yep. Uh, 30 would be a little bit alarming. <laughs> and he's at that age where you could make a logical argument that he could maybe be an immediate squad player and cover the injury to Amando Broya. But we yep. have to wait and see whether that's the plan or they prefer to loan him somewhere and get that game time. And then with Andre Santos, much more for the future and a really exciting signing. And they're two very different signings in terms of how they came about, because with Andre Santos on Chelsea's radar, they were in the race for Endrick. I don't actually think, contrary to reports, that Chelsea really ever thought that they stood a realistic chance of Endrick, because when I speak to sources at the club and also at PSG, there was a point probably two or three weeks before it became apparent that Real Madrid was the final destination where it was being downplayed at the Chelsea side. It was being downplayed at the PSG side. And then PSG tried their luck with an offer and they quickly took it off the table. And that was a good two or three weeks before it really became apparent that Real Madrid were going to sign the player. So I think that Chelsea learned some lessons from that. And I don't think they got sucked into a race that they realised that they couldn't have won. I think they did their due diligence. They put themselves out there because they're ambitious. And it became evident very early on uh, within the last month or so, uh, comparative to when they were still being spoken about, that they were not in that race. And that, I think, is why they turned their attention to Andre Santos. And with Andre Santos... The opposite happened in many ways because it was Newcastle that had put in all of the legwork for this particular player. And then suddenly the midfielder was turned by the Chelsea interest, which, as I say, because of the Endrick situation, Chelsea, I think, determined that they were going to move on to another target. And I'm not in any way comparing Endrick and Santos because obviously one's a forward and the other's yeah. a midfielder, but I mean more financially that you can never have anything. So sometimes what you have to do is say, well, if we're going to get Endrick, we'll put our money there, but then yeah. that will be at the expense of Santos because that's another 20 odd million. Right. So instead, once you lose out on that race for Endrick, you say, well, you know what? Midfield's equally, if not more so, a priority, especially in the long run. So let's invest a third of what would have been our Endrick money to Santos. And because that was more longstanding in terms of their scouting, they were basically able to just make that decision on financial terms because they were locked on Santos as well. But they hadn't escalated it at that point because they were still exploring Endrick. And like I said before, 
you can't just have everything. They've already spent about 70 million English pounds, 85 odd million dollars on young talent. So you can't keep doing that even in different positions. You have to make choices. And then I think what they did is they hijacked a lot of the progress that Newcastle had made. And because they already had a bit of a relationship and because they'd scouted the player in a longer period of time, that was the type of deal that they could just get done quicker. And they obviously were able to persuade the player and his family because they had those relationships, which, as I understand it, actually date back a little bit longer and to, like I made the point before, members of the older Chelsea regime, not just the new regime. So family relationships are always so important when you're bringing on board a young player, particularly someone that's coming to a new continent, uh, potentially dealing with a new language. Uh, Everything about the move can be quite unsettling. So the buy-in with the family is so, so important. Exactly the same with Endrick as well. With Datre Fafana, a little bit different because all the legwork was actually done for that particular deal at Brighton who thought that they were going to be able to complete that deal and then suddenly Chelsea come along (laughs) and it doesn't take a rocket scientist to understand that that was a newer type of deal put on the table due to the fact that Carl McCauley likes the player, Graham Potter likes the player, Paul Winstanley likes the player and Chelsea were just prepared to pay a bit more and that allowed the deal to get done relatively quickly in the end. And then if we look forward to the January window in terms of more established players, I think we know midfield and it's quite clear as well that goals are needed, especially because Raheem Sterling is not playing in his sort of favoured position and being given that freedom to only attack as like a left-sided forward or as a player that can cut inside. And if he continues to be used as a wing-back, whether indefinitely or just in game management and we wait and see when everybody's fit then that is taking goals away from the Chelsea team in addition to that Kai Havertz has a lot of pressure on him at the moment to keep scoring Aubameyang we don't know about his long-term future the expectation is of course that he'll see out the season but that was a Thomas Tuchel signing and you have to factor in the age as well and then from behind him we've never really seen anybody else kind of take the responsibility, whether that's a Mason Mount, whether that's a Christian Pulisic, whether that's a Hakim Ziyech. Of course, not all of these players have had consistent game time, but there's nobody really there that you say, if Havertz isn't scoring and or if Aubameyang isn't scoring, and if Sterling isn't being given the freedom and he shouldn't be judged in terms of his goal tally if he's being asked to ultimately have more of a defensive-minded role. I'm not saying that's going to continue for the long term, but I'm talking about the build-up to the World Cup and Raheem Sterling. So as a consequence, there's nobody else that you can name at the moment that you say, they're going to get me seven to 10 goals between now and the end of the season. And Chelsea needs someone like that in addition to Kai Havertz if they're to make this push back in towards Champions League football. So Chelsea might go down the line of a loan for a forward-minded player because they know that they've got targets that they are working on that will not be available in the January window, or they might think about a goal-scoring stopgap And that's where perhaps uh, Wilfred Zaha becomes very interesting. Not the sexiest of signings, but the type of player, once again, that could just add you those goals in the short term and be a very valuable squad player. It won't be Cristiano Ronaldo. That's another thing to say. And whereas a few months back, the indication from sources close to the club were Graham Potter's perspective is the same as Thomas Tuchel's, but Todd Bowley was still intrigued. Now my understanding is that it is just a no from Chelsea. And it looks like Ronaldo's offer at the moment is going to be coming from Saudi Arabia and Al Nasser. Mm. He's getting very close, as we understand, at CBS Sports deciding that. But the forward situation is interesting because it's, uh, do you move now because we need Champions League football or do you wait? And if right. you wait, you start talking about a Dusan Vlaevic who could become available and Ivan Tony who might be in the conversation, but there is obviously those charges against alleged breaches of the betting rules. So we don't know what the final punishment there is going to be. So I think that there's a few considerations and Chelsea are naturally going to be linked with a number of names, but they clearly want a striker. And then with midfield, it's a similar story because if they're going to be in the race for Declan Rice, 
more likely than Jude Bellingham, different kinds of players as well. But the appeal of Bellingham, as he showed for England, is that he could play next to Rice and deeper or further forwards. But I think that Bellingham, Liverpool, Real Madrid are the front runners. Rice, Chelsea are a little bit more confident, but there are a lot of suitors and the fees drop with Rice as well. But if you're planning for Rice and or Bellingham, then obviously any player joining in January in those positions is going to say, am I going to be push down the pecking order in a few months time and what's the situation with Kante and Jorginho and they'll need to know that because in addition to that you've still also got Conor Gallagher too so there's actually a lot of names in midfield they're just not the right names or the form names even Dennis Zakaria is still at the club at the moment so I think that's the consideration Edson Alvarez is one to keep an eye on in January because Todd Bowley did say he'd be back at the end of the last window, but sporting directors always change their mind and there's a whole new recruitment team. So we have to wait and see on that one, but definitely a possibility that that's a name. And then, as I've said before, Chelsea may determine that they want to look in a new position. I think if you'd have asked Chelsea at the end of the window, they'd have absolutely categorically said a DM because there were injuries and there were players that they thought might leave. And of course, a forward, because we just know that goals are needed. But a forward right at the end of the last window wouldn't have been that high because they'd have turned around and said, we've just signed Aubameyang. We've just signed Raheem Sterling. We've got Christian Pulisic. We've got Hakim Ziyech. We've got Mason Mount. But I think a mixture of a managerial change and form has definitely bumped up the necessity to get an established striker in. And we have to wait and see whether that comes in January or Chelsea gamble a little bit on what they've got and maybe alone, and then wait until the summer. And that will just depend on the movement within the market as well. And then again, I think if you'd have come back to Thomas Tuchel when he was still at the club and said, what else do you want? He'd have still said a right back, Aspilicueta's future at that point was a bit uncertain, and a centre-back. So you could argue that Chelsea still need to add defensively, even with Fafana's arrival, even with Koulibaly coming in, the feeling from Tuchel was that he wanted a third, either a centre-back or a kind of versatile player, or potentially what then was deemed as a replacement for Aspilicueta, even though he ended up signing a deal. But let's not forget, right at the beginning of the window and in the middle of the window, it didn't look likely that he was going to extend. So there's a lot of moving parts here, is my point. And I think that Chelsea will explore what is now in a quick window, market value and available. And it won't be as big as the summer and it won't be as big as next summer, but there's that level of ambition and necessity. So two or three for me, I think definitely a midfielder, more likely a central midfielder, defensive midfielder, but box to box can't be ruled out. And I'll clarify what I said on Yuri Tielemans as well, because as ever, I give these ridiculous essay-like answers where you can't get a word in edgeways and then just five seconds and one line gets hauled out on social media. (laughs) And I said, a player like Tielemans is available in the market and a player like Tielemans is available on a free transfer and a player like Tielemans is in majestic form for Leicester and a player like Tielemans is definitely the type of position that Chelsea could look at Because instead of only DM, they might think that box-to-box or a more old-school central midfielder is what they need as they start to plan away from the Kantes and the Jorginhos and the Kovacic's of this world. Even if they don't sign new contracts, they still need to plan because of the ages of these players. And then I said, but with Tielemans, it's Arsenal and Chelsea have made no concrete approach yet. So we can't say that he is on Chelsea's radar, but we can say that it's that type of player in this type of window that as we get towards the end of the window can become market value and you can try your luck with. And you'll kind of remember that Chelsea did that a little bit, I suppose, with uh, Danny Drinkwater, even though it didn't work out. But of course, then people, even some of the tabloid newspapers said, Chelsea enter the race for Tielemans. And that's a complete (laughs) exaggeration of what was said and where we're at. But that's a position and obviously forward is a position. So I think that Chelsea will sign two to three in January. I think that they will have plans to move early with one or two, and then they'll look at market movement. And if the right movement with other clubs, either buying or selling, presents an opportunity later in the window, then I think they'll scramble and do another bit of business as well, because they're not afraid to spend 100, 150, which is a massive amount for a January window. 
But obviously, you have to still look at the fact that spending big now, instead of waiting for a player in the same position in the summer, is counterproductive, because then you end up with too big a squad, two quality players in the same position. So it's sort of cat and mouse, because if you really want Rice and really think you want Rice, and then you think Jorginho might be persuaded to re-sign and you've still got Kovacic and Kante could leave on a free, but he is still at the football club and you've got Conor Gallagher as well. Then when you add all that up, that can be quite alarming to a January signing who says, where am I in the pecking order? Yeah. And Chelsea just don't know because they can't give too much away about what they're doing in the summer. And that is the irony of the midfield. It desperately needs revamping, but there's actually also quite a lot of personnel there at this point. Right, right. Lots for Chelsea to think about, a lot that could happen in the next few weeks. But Ben, as always, it's been a lot of fun talking to you. I think we've covered a lot of good information today. It's been an incredible few months watching the World Cup. And now I think we're all excited to get back to the Premier League over the next few days. Yeah, look forward to it. I mean, Chelsea should win against Bournemouth and that will give them a little bit of a catalyst heading into a key period. But ultimately, it's a calming win that's how i describe it because if you beat bournemouth on tuesday then fans feel like it's been a productive world cup break they see the injured players coming back and that creates particularly i suppose on social media a calmness a draw or a loss to bournemouth and there's panic heading to nottingham forest and then really the whole push to try and get into Champions League because of where Chelsea are is not necessarily around April, May, which is what we associate with the race for third and fourth in particular. And I just don't think that Chelsea will be better than third or fourth and therefore it will be tight. But Chelsea need to make sure that they're still in that race heading into the run-up. So actually it's the January through to Champions League in mid-February period that's so key. And the reason for that is because that whole period is just filled with big games. They've got to play Manchester City at home in early January in the league. They've got to go away at Liverpool in late January. They've got London derbies, which are never easy against Fulham and Crystal Palace. I think they actually, by the quirk of the fixtures, end up playing Fulham twice in the Premier League in the space of only a couple of weeks. And they've got away at West Ham. And then, of course, by just after Valentine's Day on the 15th of February, it's Dortmund as well. So I think yeah. we'll know a lot about Chelsea in mid-Feb, whereas normally we're talking about if you're there or thereabouts, and I know some will say, well, Chelsea are only eighth at the moment. They're not there or thereabouts, but they've still got a game in hand over Tottenham and Newcastle. So if you win that game in hand, then you're on 24 points. And for me, that's there or thereabouts because right. Tottenham in fourth are on 29th. So usually we're saying you just got to stay within three points or six points by mid-March if you've got a good run of fixtures and are in a good run of form and then anything can happen. And Spurs showed that beating Arsenal to Champions League football last season. But I just sense with Chelsea, if they don't get going and win a big game yeah. against that Man City, against that Liverpool, if they don't get their business done in the London derbies, then by the time we get to Dortmund in mid-February, that gap between Chelsea and Champions League football might be eight points, nine points. And that's when you start saying it's going to be really, really difficult to claw it back. So I think Bournemouth, Nottingham Forest are really important. They're games that Chelsea should win. They're games that nine times out of 10, Chelsea will win. But if they start after the World Cup break by not beating Bournemouth, then I think instead of having calmness and optimism heading into January, panic amongst certain members of the fan base sets in. And then that may not affect Chelsea significantly. Right. It just means that Graham Potter in the media is under pressure. And it just means that the players have to try and shut everything out in order to focus on their football. No, look, you said it best. We need a calming win. I don't care if it's a one nil win and we go through it. <laughs> that's what we go through. But Ben, thank you so much again for your time. That wraps it up for our listeners. We wanted to keep it short today. Uh, wherever you're listening, thank you for tuning in. And I guess since the World Cup's over, up the chels. <laughs> hey, guys. The Premier Chels is sponsored by Kickoff Coffee. They are a top quality artisanal roasted coffee. In other words, they're Champions League winner and Premier League winner every single time. They deliver fresh bags directly to your home, so you don't have to go to a coffee shop and pick up something. And the best part about them is every bag gives back to soccer charities. 10% of the proceeds go to organizations that use soccer to promote youth social development in the underserved areas. 
Use our code TPCOFFEE15 to get 15% off your order. You can order at kickoffcoffeeco.com or check out the links on our social media. Thanks.